So uh, before I start my message, if you guys have been to ECC before, you know that we're a, a hopeful people um, because of what God has done for us in Christ, and we know that our ultimate hope is in Him. Um, and so no matter what in life, uh, no matter what's thrown at us, we have that ultimate hope of the day when all things will be made right and new. But uh, it goes without saying, sometimes life uh, can be really hard and sin just rears its head in a really nasty way, and that's certainly something we've seen this past weekend um, in the death of Hannah Wilson, just an absolute tragedy. Um, and as people who mourn with those who mourn, our hearts just go out to her family and friends. And so I think it's only appropriate that we take a second and uh, just kind of quiet our hearts and pray for them as they grieve, and uh, that God somehow would be able to uh, minister to those who are grieving along with them and to their hearts in the midst of what they're going through. So would you just pray with me now? Um, Father, we come before you, and um, the weight of sin in this world can sometimes just crush us, and um, it's, it's really hard to see uh, people um, miss a loved one as a result of such a horrible injustice done to someone so young with so much uh, life left to live. God, there's um, no good that um, can come from such a terrible tragedy, but uh, Father, we ask that somehow, by your sovereign power and your grace, you would make your presence known, um, that you are the God who is um, without end, that you are God of hope, that there is always hope, and um, that is ours in Christ Jesus. So we pray that you would reach out to those um, people who are grieving now, God, with your grace. Um, make yourself known to them in a powerful way, and uh, we just pray for her friends and family, um, that you would minister to them, that you'd be present with them, and that you would equip believers on this campus to minister to those who are asking questions and wondering about where you're at in the midst of this, that um, you would um, show your face, that your face of glory would shine brighter um, than uh, the terrible tragedy that has taken place, and this is our hope in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, thanks, guys. So it's great to be here together this evening, and um, I don't know if any of you can see this out the window, but it looks like there's a pretty serious DTR going on out in the grass with an undergrad couple, so I hope that's not too distracting. Um, somebody's determining their relationship out there, and it looks pretty serious. By the looks of things, I'd imagine they'll still be there when the service is over, so we may want to go out and check on it and see how things ended up. Um, he looks pretty hopeful. So, uh, this is the conclusion of our Home and Away series that we've been going through this semester. We've been talking about the people of Israel away in Babylon and now returned to their homeland. And so, we spent two weeks in the book of Ezra leading up to tonight. And in the first week studying Ezra, we talked about the rebuilding of the altar. The second week, we talked about the rebuilding of the temple. And uh, this week, we're talking about Nehemiah. As Adam Beaver, our guitarist, our bass player in the band, nicknamed the Cowboy of Faith. And uh, our message tonight is called Leading in Faith, and so I want to talk about Nehemiah. This project of rebuilding the wall is the last project in this rebuilding phase that, co that were covered um, these past few weeks. And this is actually the last point chronologically in the Old Testament. And so the story we're reading tonight actually takes place 80 years after that temple we talked about last week was built, and 
the rebuilding of the temple took 20 years, guys. That's a really long time for one building, right? Um, and so at the time when the temple was rebuilt, there were 50,000 Israelites back in the land. And since that time, I'm trying to give you a little bit of context for tonight's story, five more thousand people have come back under Ezra's leadership. And uh, that was 57 years after the temple was built. And so tonight, when Nehemiah comes back, he brings the last Israelites with him, 42,000 more people. And Nehemiah comes back 13 years later. So these Israelites are all living around the capital city of Jerusalem, where the altar and the temple were. But the city's walls were basically in shambles. And it wasn't a safe place for a large amount of people to live. Israel's neighbors weren't exactly thrilled that they were reestablishing themselves as a nation and mass and their efforts to reestablish were a threat to the people around Israel. And so without a wall, Jerusalem was a place in jeopardy because these enemies didn't want to see them reestablish. And so they were a people in jeopardy of attack. The city, the altar, the temple were all at risk of being destroyed once again. And because of that risk, many Israelites lived in fear and they lived in the countryside where they were exposed rather than in the city out of this greater fear that the city was going to again be destroyed and they along with it. So they're finding themselves in this really tough place. And where our story begins tonight is with Nehemiah, an Israelite who's living in a city called Susa. I'm curious, any music history people out there, I wonder if it's what the Susa phone was named after, huh? <coughs> John Philip Susa, maybe his name is from Susa. Um, so Nehemiah, living in Susa, a Susa phone player, that's not true. Don't quote me on that. Um, he was a close advisor to the Persian king. And so Nehemiah's brother and some other men come back to Susa with this report after they had just been in Jerusalem. And I want to read to you all a little bit of this report. If you have your Bible, I'd love it if you opened up to Nehemiah chapter 1. And so Nehemiah is in the king's palace, and these men return from Jerusalem, and he asks them, So, what's the city like? Tell me about it. Um, how are the people? And now I want to read to you their response. We're in Nehemiah chapter 1, and this is verse 3. So he asks them about the remnant and the people who survived and the rebuilding. And um, what Nehemiah says is, They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And next the text tells us Nehemiah's reaction to this news. Nehemiah records in his journal here, that is the book of Nehemiah, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And so, I want you to think about a time in your life when you maybe have heard a piece of news where you instantly sat down and broke into tears. Uh, this is that kind of moment for Nehemiah. This news absolutely destroyed him. He's devastated. He just sits down and cries and he prays and fasts. And so we go on to read one of his prayers that he uh, lifted up to the Lord after some time. Listen to the words in this prayer. He says, Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today in granting him favor in the presence of this man. And so... What's he talking about here? He's talking about this conversation he's about to have with the king of Persia. Basically what's occurred is in this period of time, since he's heard this news about the sorry state of Israel, God has put it on his heart to do something about it. So we fast forward about four months to this conversation with the king, 
where his prayer comes to fruition. Uh, this conversation between Nehemiah and the king of Persia. So evidently, God has just stirred up his heart to go and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem since the time he learned about it. Nehemiah knew of this need, and he felt personally compelled to engage it. And so he prayed, and he waited for the right time. He waited for the right moment to ask the king to support his efforts. And so Nehemiah goes before the king, and he's really nervous to ask, but he set himself to do it. And so the king asks him, he says, Nehemiah, what do you want? He can tell that Nehemiah has something on his mind to bring before him. And Nehemiah narrates it, saying, I prayed to God in heaven and answered the king. Uh, so basically what Nehemiah is saying is before he went and asked the king permission to rebuild, he threw up a one-liner. Um, we've all been there, right? You know, you go into that job interview, God help me. Um, this is what Nehemiah is doing right here. He lays out to the king his need, um, his felt need in Jerusalem, and he asks if he can return to help rebuild the wall. And so how does the king respond? Uh, Interestingly enough, he not only tells Nehemiah that he can go back to Jerusalem, but he grants his request for help with resources to the job. So this pagan king sends Nehemiah back, and he provides him with the building materials. Uh, so is this king just a really generous guy? Uh, why is he doing this? What's his motivation? Nehemiah tells us that it wasn't that he was a really great and kind-hearted man. It's because God responded to his one-liner, this prayer that Nehemiah tossed up at the last minute as he told the king what his need was. Uh, Nehemiah records this in his journal, saying, Because the gracious hand of my God was with me, the Lord granted my request. And so the king granted his request because God had softened his heart. And so the king allowed Nehemiah to return to Israel, and he even sent along army officials and cavalry to protect him on his journey. And so this is pretty sweet stuff. It's another one of those stories, like we've read this semester, where it's like, okay, so like, these should be enemies. Like, why is this pagan king who doesn't even believe in the exclusive nature of the God of Israel supporting rebuilding of his temple and altar to sacrifice for him? Um, God can work in whatever way and through whomever he desires. And so uh, this is pretty sweet stuff that's happening here. They're going back. They're going back to rebuild the wall. Um, I want to tell you a quick story that might help you make a little more sense of this. So, I like to think I'm a pretty hard worker, but if I'm being honest, um, my wife is a way harder worker than I am. In fact, she makes me feel really lazy. Um, so four years ago, my wife was teaching middle school English in Tennessee, which is actually considered a foreign language in Tennessee because everyone speaks Appalachian. Um, you try and teach them actually English grammar, they're really confused. Um, and so, She's teaching English, and she just kept feeling like she was doing the wrong thing. It was um, on her heart that she felt really called and led to be in a medical profession. And so she decided, I really want to go to PA school. And uh, so we kind of headed in that direction. We committed ourselves to it. The only downside is, believe it or not, English majors don't study many things that you need to know going to PA school. And so that meant that she had all this experience to get. She started off cleaning bedpans in a nursing home. She worked her way up to making rotations in a hospital, and then she worked in a doctor's office. She took classes, prerequisites, at four different community colleges. I'm not looking at her because I know she'd be mad at me for telling all this. Um, and uh, this is all stuff that she had to do. Guys, she took a class in the winter, and she had to drive over to Columbus, Indiana, twice a week to get these prerequisites. And uh, so, a year ago, we found out she got into PA school, and after so much work, we were like, yes, like, this is a big moment for us. We were so pumped. Like, 
it was a goal we had aspired to for such a long time. And uh, we really celebrated that. It was a huge win. Um, and then school started. And we were like, oh my gosh, this is insane. Like, we were really excited about this, and now, like, we never see each other. And it's just really tough. Um, and so it's amazing to have that opportunity, but it's also a challenge of faith. There was a part of us who thought we'd arrived, and it was like, oh no, we're there. Oh my gosh, how are we gonna get through this? Um, how are we gonna get through this? By God's grace. And why are we gonna do it? Because we've already invested a lot of money into it. <laughs> so we're gonna do this. <laughs> so uh, way to go, Brit. Thanks for the illustration. All that to say, Nehemiah has a really similar story. God provided for him in a miraculous way and bring him back to Israel to rebuild this walls. But the next point we come to in this story is Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem with his contingent. He starts by inspecting these walls that are in absolute shambles and just looks around himself and it is a tall task before him. So this wall around Jerusalem would have been two or two and a half miles long. Um, it would have been two and a half miles long. It would have been... Uh, it would have needed to be tall and thick so that if enemies attacked the city of Jerusalem, they would be deterred. It would feature numerous towers and gates to keep watch so people could get in and out of the city. This is a serious wall, and so remember, this temple, this one building took 20 years to build. Just one building. Um, any guesses how long this wall is going to take? Any guesses out there? Any guesses? Nobody's feeling brave? Cheyenne, you're a brave man. As long as it could. Uh -huh. It took 52 days. 52 days. That's crazy, huh? Um, 52 days. So it must have been really smooth sailing, right? Maybe perfect circumstances, no problems. This wall just got done very easily. Um, that's not the case at all. So the Israelites not only had this huge physical task of building this massive wall back up, this huge structural challenge, but they had to deal with the threat of violence from these surrounding people groups who didn't want to see the wall rebuilt. This was incredibly challenging. So, uh, Cheyenne, great guess, but I'm sorry. Um, how did all this get done in 52 days? If you ask that question, a lot of Christian leaders would say because Nehemiah was a phenomenal leader. And credit where it's due, Nehemiah is one of the texts that people in the Bible often look to when they want to study leadership. And one of the commentaries I read this week when I was preparing my sermon had a list that was titled 21 Principles of Leadership in Nehemiah, Chapter 2. And uh, that just cracked me up. That's a lot of leadership principles in one chapter. Um, it was like, Nehemiah talked. It was like, does that really need its own principle? Come on. So, in fairness, Nehemiah really was a leader that God called and equipped for this task in a really special and remarkable way. However, rather than spending this evening laying out 21 principles of effective leadership chapter 2, um, which you can probably hear at Chick-fil-A Leadership Conference because they love that stuff, um, I want to talk about one principle, just one, that undergirds all of Nehemiah's leadership from beginning to end. We saw it clearly in the opening chapters of this book, and we see it throughout the entirety of this story. And here it is. So Nehemiah... Nehemiah was a man who absolutely depended on God in prayer. He knew that the power to change hearts and rebuild a nation was in God's hands, and if his efforts to rebuild this wall and to restore his people would mean anything, it would be because God worked in a powerful way. It would be a result of God's work and not his own. And so Nehemiah was a man who was deeply committed to prayer. 
So remember what we read. After he heard the news about the state of Jerusalem, he prayed. Before he presented his request to the king, he prayed. And that is only the beginning. So in the book of Nehemiah, there are 12 different occasions where Nehemiah prays. And so moving forward from here, um, if you still have your Bible open, we move on to chapter 4. And we read about this time where the people of Israel are being opposed by these people groups around them uh, who are seeing the wall be rebuilt and are really unhappy. And these two guys in general, Sambalot and Tobiah, who are particularly big jerks, are watching them rebuild a section of the wall. And the Samaritan army, who is an enemy of Israel as well, is there watching. And these guys just start trash-talking because they didn't want them to succeed. And so they openly mock the Israelites to their faces. I want to read you guys what they say. Um, here's some 5th century... BC trash talk. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their walls? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? <coughs> Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, this is a good one-liner, he says, what are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their walls of stone. Um, same, huh? Uh, and so these guys are just really discouraging the Israelites. And so, what does Nehemiah do? Any guesses? Um, he prays. He says, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of your builders. And so, Nehemiah in the face of opposition, remains committed to prayer, and he remains committed to the actions that God has called him to. They keep rebuilding the wall, but the opposition doesn't stop. They're continually faced with it in the midst of their already difficult task, this huge physical challenge. The intense opposition doesn't end. Um, but Nehemiah does not become discouraged. In the midst of this opposition, he prays again chapter 6. Listen to this. They're tired. He's worn out. Uh, he says, God, strengthen my hands. Now strengthen my hands. He's absolutely dependent on God to accomplish this task that God has called him to. And so Nehemiah keeps on praying. He keeps on leading. Uh, the people keep working. And eventually we come to this point in chapter 6 where the wall is complete. We read, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in the 52 days. In 52 days. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. The work had been done with the help of their God. Even the surrounding nations could see it. The people who didn't even believe that their God alone was the one true God. The wall was built in 52 days. This is 20... This is two and a half miles of wall in a month and a half. That is just crazy. Um, I'm pretty sure Route 37 up to Indy has been under construction for the past two and a half years. Um, they did this in 52 days. And so why was this? Not because of Nehemiah's extraordinary leadership methods, um, though God did use him in a powerful way, but because of God's action. And so Nehemiah led the project and nation as a man who was completely dependent on God and presented his requests and prayer before God continually. And prayer was that catalyst through which God stirred up Nehemiah's heart towards this calling to go and rebuild. 
Prayer is what enabled him to follow that calling, and prayer was the driving force through which God worked to carry out all of their efforts once they were back in that land. And Nehemiah's active belief, he didn't just pray, he worked. He worked hard and he led his people in doing the same. Um, his belief in God's ability to work, his awareness of his deep need for God to show up, set the stage for God to work through him in a really powerful way. And so, I really don't think Nehemiah would have thought of himself as the prime example of an amazing leader. I think he would have just said, you know what, I prayed, I followed God, and I did the best I could. He was a man who led humbly and admitted his need. He looked to God constantly to provide in all things. He depended on him and trusted in his, his provision in the midst of some great challenges. And God always provided. He was so faithful. And... Uh, as we look at the big picture of this book, there are so many things that we can see in Nehemiah's life and ministry that are really applicable to our lives today. And there are just three of them that I want us to focus on together. And uh, the first one is this. So like Nehemiah, God often calls us in our own lives, our own walks of faith, to places and tasks where we will be completely out of luck if God doesn't show up. Um, he calls us to places that would be impossible for us to handle apart from his action. This can be a really uncomfortable thing. Um, if you're a follower of God, sooner or later, you're going to find yourself in a place where your strength won't be enough. Um, your situation before you will appear to you as more than you can handle. And so what I want to tell you is you are right. You may well not be able to handle the circumstances that are in front of you. But... What's before you, though it may be more than you can handle, does not have to be something that you take on in your own power. This story reminds us that we are people who are called to face challenges in light of the truth. <coughs> God calls us, but that doesn't mean that where we're going to is going to be a place that's comfortable. Like Nehemiah, we are constantly going to have to be people who are dependent on God. We're going to be people who need be coming to him in constant, real, and open prayer for him to provide what we need to be faithful to those things to which he's called us. And guys, this is really hard. I don't know if you're like me, but there are some times in my life where I can find myself frustrated with myself because I'm like, dang it, I am immature. Like, why do I have to be so dependent on God? Like, I should have this covered. Oh, wait a second. God is God and I am not. I am created to be dependent on him. Being dependent on God is not a sign of my immaturity. That's actually a sign of maturity to recognize who I am, what I'm capable of, and where I need to be willing to say, you know what, God? You are greater than I am. You alone can provide. You alone are good. You alone are wise. I need to take a step back and recognize I don't have this covered, and that's okay. Coming to God with our weakness and complete dependence on Him is a very good thing. And when we fail to do that, um, that is probably a sign of the fact that we need a little perspective correction. And that can be pretty painful. I'm talking from experience, guys. Uh, God responds to the prayers of his people in power, and we see this all over scripture, so we, we just can't afford to neglect the gift that prayer is, that God hears our prayers, that God responds. Um, the next thing we see in Nehemiah's story is that prayer is not only the place where we connect with God and He responds in power, but prayer is also a discipline that keeps our hearts on track with the truth about who God is. It's a discipline. 
Nehemiah prayed expectantly for God's intervention in his people's story, and the act of praying itself served as a constant reminder of where the power for his calling truly came from. It was all about God's ability. It was all about God's action. And so coming to God in prayer, the act of doing that kept Nehemiah's heart rooted in this reality. It's really hard to think more highly of ourselves than we ought when we have a constant dialogue going with God, a prayer dialogue going with Him. When we commit ourselves to this discipline, it is well worth the reward. It totally changes our outlook on life to be people who come to God constantly, continually laying our requests before Him. And so finally, the story leads us to remember that as God's people, we are able to have a solid hope that God is on our side. We don't just toss up prayers and say, fingers crossed. We have a firm promise. We have an ultimate hope because in Christ, God has met us with grace and confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt his deep care for us. And the book of Hebrews talks about this, telling us that Christ is our high priest. Christ is a mediator between us and God. He's the one who sympathizes with us, this book tells us. And the author of Hebrews says that because of Christ, we can have confidence and draw near to the throne of grace because he, as our great high priest, gives us mercy. We come before him with confidence that we might receive mercy and grace in our time of need. That's Hebrews 4, verse 16. So bring your prayers to God with confidence. God hears you. He will meet you with grace and mercy. And so, no matter what you go through in those times when God's answer to your prayer doesn't look like you might hope, remember God's ultimate provision for you in Jesus Christ. It's big enough for your circumstances. He's able to meet us with the realities of the gospel in life's darkest moments. And so, as you leave here and go back into um, the challenges that are going to face you these next two weeks before the end of the semester, or maybe this summer, or maybe down the road. As you walk through those circumstances and those challenges in your life, remember Paul's words to the Philippians. And as Paul spoke these words, he knew uh, the difficulty that they held, um, that in the midst of our circumstances, we can have hope in Christ, and that God hears our prayers even when what's before us is really challenging and uncomfortable. Paul spoke these words to him. He said, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Um, sometimes I can feel a real sense of peace when my own understanding can grasp what's going on in my circumstances, and I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But uh, in those moments where my own understanding can't see that light, and has a hard time finding hope in my own ability to make sense of my situation. I need this peace that passes all understanding, and that is found in Christ alone. So let that peace of Christ guard your heart. Let that peace guard your mind. You are a person who is firmly rooted in Him because of your faith. You are a child of God. So remember this truth. This is ours in Christ. Your circumstances will ebb and flow, but God's grace on your behalf will never change. So hold on to it. God loves you and he's powerful. Let's pray together. God, we 
Uh, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the way that you speak truth to us. We thank you that um, in the story of Nehemiah, we see a humble man who came before you and recognized that um, he did not have what it took to fulfill the call you put on his life, on his own power. But God, you provided the power. You provided all that he needed to accomplish that task. You equipped him in every way to fulfill the calling that you put on his life. And God, as we um, live out our lives here in Bloomington, and no matter where you call us moving forward, we pray that you would remind us that, um, God, what you call us to, you will provide for us there. So give us faith to trust you. Uh, to be people who are humble enough to depend on you, to remember that that is a sign of maturity, that you are God, that we are not, and that we are people with open hands asking you to give to us because of your grace, to fill us up with all that we need. We pray that as we find ourselves in that position of wanting God, that we would know that you provided us um, in a very full way in Christ, and that our ultimate hope is in Him, and that in the midst of our circumstances, Your grace on our behalf never changes. So we pray that You would make that very real to us, that we would be people who are changed by that grace, and that we would be people who proclaim it in the places um, that are in need of that light. And um, we pray this together in the name of Jesus. Amen.